Please turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2, 28 through 310 is our text for the morning. Welcome to those of you visiting. We're going through the book of 1 John. We've entitled the, the whole series throughout the book called Assured Child of God. John's writing to these little children, as he calls them, wants them to know that they are right with God, that they are assured of eternal life with Him, especially because there have been some that have left their church and even left the faith that claim to know God themselves, and they're calling into question the people that remain, their faith. So John writes to assure this remaining group of their salvation. Let's read 1 John 2, 28 through 3.10. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. I've entitled this message, True Righteousness Explained. I think there's sometimes a confusion about righteousness. What is true righteousness? What isn't true righteousness? Uh, Growing up around Christian things my whole life, myself not being a Christian until I was in college, but growing up around Christian things my whole life, I saw different forms of righteousness. I saw fake righteousness, a righteousness that looked like one thing one day of the week and another thing the other six days of the week. I saw self-righteousness, those who thought of themselves, and this was me included, thought of myself compared to other people, and I always came out better than they were in my mind. Self-righteousness. I'm also a child of the 80s, so righteous was also a term meaning cool. So lots of confusion about the term righteousness. Well, John writes to clear up what righteousness looks like in the life of a child of God. We've already shown from 1 John 1 and 2 that the apostle knows even children of God still sin and have an element of unrighteousness in them. So what does it look like for a child of God to be righteous in everyday life, in the future? What does it look like? So John writes to give clarity to the church as to what true righteousness in the life of a believer actually looks like. And so this morning, we're going to see two characteristics of the child of God's righteousness. Two characteristics of the child of God's righteousness. The first is found in chapter 2, 28 through 3, 3, and it's this. Our righteousness is progressive. 
Our righteousness is progressive. When we're born spiritually, John 3 says being born again. When we're born spiritually, reborn, when we're born spiritually, we become righteous like God as a pattern of life, not perfection, but as a pattern of life. And this passage tells us that one day we will actually be perfectly righteous like Him. Now, just think about that for 10 seconds. One day we will be perfectly righteous like Him. So there's a progression, you could say, to the child of God's righteousness. We're made righteous, certainly declared to be perfectly righteous by God. We have that now. But we know that we're not actually righteous right now. But God, by His Holy Spirit, lives inside of us and gives us new desires to be righteous, and that's the new characteristic of our life. We want to respond patiently, and oftentimes we do. We want to be generous, and oftentimes we are. doesn't mean perfectly, but that is the new direction of our life. When God's Word or someone else rebukes us or corrects us or exhorts us, and we see faults, we confess them, and then we pursue righteousness again. That's the pattern. So our, our righteousness is a progressive righteousness. We've been changed to now have a pattern of righteousness. That's happened to all Christians. And one day, again, we will be fully righteous. Let's look at how John makes this argument, 2.28. And now, little children, abide in Him. So we were previously told, abide in His teaching. Don't listen to those that have left and are saying wrong things about who Jesus is, so abide in His teaching. Now this idea of abiding seems to be talking about abide in Him and be righteous. So as Jesus is the life-giving vine, attach yourself to the life-giving vine so that His righteousness can flow through you. Abide in Him in order to be righteous is the idea of this section here. And now little children, abide in Him so that when He appears... We may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Notice this. The child of God whose normal pattern is to walk in righteousness, the day when Christ returns, as soon as that happens, can see the clouds split, can see the Lord Jesus, and not be ashamed, can be confident. John writes one of the motivations for our righteousness to be that we would have confidence on that day when Christ comes. So imagine being alive when Jesus returns for the second time and our life of righteousness, again, not perfect righteousness, we confess when we sin, but our pattern of being righteous like Christ will bring us to the point that when He returns, we look at Him in longing and in confidence and not, oh no, oh no. The second coming of Christ should be an exciting thing for a believer who's been living like him by the power of Christ. So if you say that you've been born again, if you say that you're a Christian, you've actually got something that's happened on the inside and looks like a pattern of righteousness with your life. And when that is true, Christ's second appearing, his coming again, will be a time of confidence because of what God has been doing in your life. So that when he appears, we have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. I know I've read to you before the poem, I Am a Disciple. Um, one of the lines in there talks about the fact that when he comes, my colors will, will be flying high. They, they, they will be right. He will know me as his own. And that's a good prayer to pray. Father, when you come, see me about your work. See me looking like your son. Lord Jesus, when you come again, Father, when you send your son, let, let me be found looking like your son. When he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So when you see someone actually living a righteous life, wow, they are generous, they are kind, they're forgiving, they're godly, they're gentle, they know God, 
They talk to God. They commune with God. When you see that in a person, you can know that they had to be born into that. That had to be given to them. And so when you know that Jesus is righteous, and then you take someone who looks righteous themselves and actually is righteous, you can say, ah, they come from him. That's the argument here. If you know that he's righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Notice, by the way, notice how the righteousness that we have is not in and of ourselves. It's given to us. It's been given to us by the Father. We're born of Him. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. So he's talking to this group of people that are troubled by those that have left, telling those that remain, we're the ones that truly know God. And John's arguing by saying, no, 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 you have a practice of righteousness. You look like Jesus. So you know that you've been born from above. And then he reminds them of their relationship with the Father. See what kind of love the Father's given to us. That is such a great phrase. You could say it, see, behold, think about, meditate on the kind of love that God's given us. Just think about it. It's not like an earthly love. The holy creator of the universe who's never done anything wrong to any of his creatures has been rebelled against, and yet he gives. He gives his own son to die for rebels, to die for sinners. And then he not only justifies them and declares, now you are innocent, now you're righteous. He also adopts them into his family. No wonder John says, think about the kind of love the Father's given to us. That word kind there in the ESV, see what kind of love can literally be translated from what country. We might say it this way, where did that come from? That's different. That's unique. Where did that love come from? I'm used to worldly love that that is good and sweet and poems are written about it and, and looks great a lot, but isn't perfect. But, but this kind of love, where did this come from? That's the idea here. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. It's, it's similar language about Jesus in Matthew 8 when he calms the sea and the question was asked about, from, about him, what kind of man is this? This is not a normal man. This is a different man. Where did this man come from to be able to do this? Well, it's not a seed that we're talking about in 1 John. It's an actual love we're talking about here in 1 John. And the question is, where did this love come from? John's reminding the children of God about the amazing love of the Father. See what kind of love the Father's given to us that we should be called children of God. And then in a book about assurance, it's no wonder he writes these next words. And so we are. We are children of God. Do not let them tell you otherwise. Think about the love that God the Father has given to us so that we could be children of God. And listen to this. And you are children of God. That's what John's trying to communicate. I'm struck by how often... The Apostle John wants us to know about the love of the Father and wants Christians to know that they have a heavenly Father. His, his gospel, which so many of you are going through in small group Bible studies and men's women's groups, isn't the gospel of John filled with father-son language? And so much of it in the gospel of John is speaking of Jesus, the Son, and God the Father. So much of it is that way. Jesus is always communicating that he comes from the Father. His will and the Father's will are the same. The works of his Father are his works. And then later on, in months down the road, you'll see in the upper room that Jesus talks a lot about the fact that he's going to his Father. And that his Father's going to send the Spirit. And then he prays to his Father. And there's this Father-Son communication happening in John 17 that we get to eavesdrop in. And you get the sense going through John that 
this relationship between the Son and the Father is airtight and beautiful and special and loving and eternal. This is special. This is amazing. And then in the Gospel of John, as Jesus is telling his disciples about the love of the Father, he tells them in that upper room, he says that you all are my friends. You all are special to me. You're my friends. And I'm going to reveal to you some things that are going to happen. And he's bringing them in as he's about to die. And then he's arrested in the Gospel of John, and they all leave. The one that brought them in now has them running away from him in his time of greatest need as a man, in his time of betrayal and arrest. And so when he dies and rises again, what message would he have for those disciples? I wonder what he'd say. Well, here's what he says. He's at the tomb. Mary thinks he's the gardener. And Mary's astonished. And he finally communicates and shows that he is the risen Lord. And he says this to her. Go and tell my brothers that I ascend to my Father and your Father. Even after they've betrayed him and sinned against him, he communicates to them not just that he's going to the Father. Now he heightens the sweetness of it all and calls them brothers and says, I'm going to my Father now, and he's your Father as well. That's right after they've left him. Sinfully been cowards, walked away from him, And yet he communicates that God is not only his father at the end of the Gospel of John, but he's their father as well. The Holy Spirit of God has designed the scriptures to be written so that the children of God would know that God is their father. God is our father. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Then he continues... The reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. John knows that for a child of God, as we live in this world, it's not home. We're children of God, but we're not in our home with him yet. And we're actually in enemy territory. There's hostility toward the child of God. So while he comforts them and says that you're children of God, you are. Think about the love behind all that. Then he brings reality to it. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. Look at how they treated Jesus. You'd think that they would treat him wonderfully all the time. He is who he is. How could we not treat him wonderfully? But no, they didn't understand who he was, and so they treated him shamefully. So when you're treated shamefully, when you're not treated well as a child of God, Realize the reason why the world doesn't know us, treat us well, is it didn't know him. But mark my words, there will be a day that comes when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And one of the things that will happen that day is this idea that the rebellious world will have and they will look at Christians and say, oh, You're his son and daughter. They'll know that. They don't know that now. I mean, just think about that idea. I don't know if you ever had the experience of maybe having your parent as a teacher or a principal, and you imagine this kid being picked on, and then all of a sudden the principal comes around the corner and puts his hand on the child, and you realize, oh, the principal is the father. Oh, that's your dad. That idea, that thing is going to happen one day. Oh, you're with him. Right now, the world doesn't know it. They don't know who he is. They don't know who we are. And we feel that. The reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. But beloved, verse 2, we are God's children now. They don't get it now. We get it now. Be comforted by that. We're God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. 
But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we'll see him as he is. Here's the progressive sanctification idea, the progressive righteousness idea. We've been made righteous. Our pattern is righteousness. But one day when he, this has to be speaking of the son, when he appears, we shall be like him because we'll see him as he is. This is such an interesting idea. When we see Jesus, we'll be changed to being perfectly righteous. That's an actual thing that's going to happen. I don't know if you've ever seen things and you think, that's going to change me forever. Yeah. You see your bride walking down the aisle, that will change you forever. You see the Grand Canyon, that changes things. But nothing like this. I mean, think of this idea. You read through the Bible. You've read the Old Testament. You've read the New Testament. You see who God is. Has God ever done anything wrong? No. Has he ever sinned? No. There is no, as we saw in 1 John 1, there's no darkness in him at all. It's only light. Only good. All the time. Forever. Eternally. When we see him, that's going to be us. That's striking. I don't know if I'll recognize myself. When we see him, we will be perfectly righteous as he is. But that process has already started when we were born again. We're becoming more and more like his son, and one day we'll see his son, and boom, we're there, like him. So it's no surprise that one of the exhortations that the Bible gives us now, before we see him, is to keep focusing our minds on him, beholding him and his goodness, and we go from one level of glory to the next, 2 Corinthians 3.18. So while it is true that one day when we see him, we'll be perfectly righteous, the Bible also calls us to spend time thinking and meditating on who he is, his goodness, his character. Read the Bible, think about the Bible, meditate on the word, take it in, And that produces a certain righteousness as well. See him, be like him. One day see him, be actually like him in all of that glory and perfection. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him, everyone who has this hope and this confidence of the second coming, in other words, everyone who has this confidence in his second coming does what? Purifies himself as he is pure. So a Christian can say, I know that one day I'll see him and I will be perfect in every single way. And so right now, I want to walk in righteousness before that time. Because I see him with my eyes of faith. I know who he is. I read the gospels. I see what he's like. I read the epistles. I see them pointing back to what Jesus is like. I read the Old Testament. I see the character of God that Jesus demonstrated when he came to earth. I know who God is. And I know that one day I'll be righteous. And so right now, I want to be like him before that day. That is inside of us. We've been given that in the new birth. Everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So children of God are progressively righteous. It started with the new birth and it will come to fruition in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Again, because the word abide language is used earlier on in our passage, I want you to think about a plant. Okay, the stem, the vine, as it were, is where the the nutrients are coming through the roots, the nutrients here. You try to pluck off the stem and set it down and hope that it lives, not going to happen. But abide in me, Jesus says, attach yourself to me, abide in me, and you are the ones that will bear much fruit, he says in John 15, 1 to 5. So the idea for us, as we think of ourselves growing in righteousness, we want to grow in righteousness, abide in Jesus. Talk to him, listen to him in his word. Meditate on him, think about his character, think about what he's like. See him and live. Abide in him and live. And this is true. This is the case for all believers. 
All believers have this pattern in them. They're progressively growing more and more righteous until one day we'll be perfectly righteous. Listen to the Heidelberg Catechism. It is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by true faith should not bring fruits of thankfulness. It's impossible. You, you see an abundant a, a vine and all these branches bearing fruit, bearing fruit, and you see this other branch connected to the vine, having life go through it. It's impossible that there wouldn't be fruit from that. It's impossible. So John's writing to clarify this fact. And why did this group need that? Because there was this departed group, and when you looked at them, guess what you did not see? Righteousness. Didn't see it. There are a number of things you didn't see in this departed group. Three things come up over and over again in the book. First, you don't see a right teaching about Jesus. Don't listen to them, John says. You also don't see true righteousness. That's why John's writing to these children of God saying, look, look at yourself. You've got this righteousness in you. It comes from God. You can be sure that the one who is righteous has been born of God. And why is he writing that? Because they're looking at these other people and listening to these other people that don't have righteousness. They prioritized we know God. We have this secret knowledge. They prioritized knowledge. And John's saying, where's the righteousness? It's in you, not them. So they didn't have true teaching about Jesus. They didn't have this pattern of righteousness. And they didn't have love for their brothers. That'll come up again later in the book. So he's writing to this group to show them that children of God are progressively righteous. By way of application, I think two things jump out from the verses we've been in so far. First, he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. So you know what I think the reader should do when we come across that? I think we should see what kind of love the Father has given to us. I think the gospel should constantly be sung, meditated on, thought through, talked about, read, prayed through. Friends, see what kind of a love the Father's given to us. And then he talks about the idea of those who have the hope of this second coming, this hope of the time when we'll receive this perfect righteousness in, in our lives. Those who have that hope purify themselves. Are there areas of your life that are not pure? Confess them. And I want to remind you of these verses. John knows that children of God don't have their perfection yet. He knows that. That's why he wrote us these words. 1-7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, ah, there's a provision here. The provision has a name, Jesus Christ. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. John knows that the children of God still sin, and there's a provision for it. And notice he says that Jesus cleanses us from all sin as children of God. And then here in our passage, it says the one who believes in a second coming and knows that we'll be made perfectly righteous before him, the one that believes in that who's been cleansed, also themselves purifies themselves. So the Christian walks around with these two ideas that Jesus has cleansed me from all sin and I am today seeking to cleanse myself from sin. Not in a way that replaces his act, no one can replace that, but we seek to just walk in purity. That's what it's talking about. Do you have the works of the flesh that are outlined in Galatians 5, this malice, anger, hostility, impurity. It's not what a believer was born again to have. So remove it. Wash it. Get rid of it. But when Jesus Christ himself cleanses you from sin and gives you the fruit of the Spirit, you now walk in love, 
peace, patience, kindness, and the fruit of the Spirit. So, yes, we have Jesus forgiving us and cleansing us, but that never, that never leads to this idea, well, then I'll just kind of wait around. No, we seek to put on Jesus Christ in the words of Colossians 3 and to be righteous, and that comes from the power of God Himself. So, by way of application, purify yourself. Seek to be righteous because God has given you new life in Christ. So as children of God, there's the first idea of this righteousness. It's a progressive righteousness. But secondly, second characteristic of our righteousness, it's an empowered righteousness. Our righteousness is empowered. Chapter 3, verses 4 to 10. Listen, Christ came the first time to do something to achieve something. Christ came to powerfully defeat the power of Satan. And that doesn't just happen one day when Satan's thrown into the lake of fire. The assumption is, because Christ did what He did on the cross and in His life, that we now have the ability to overcome now not just then. So our righteousness has a certain power to it as it comes from Christ. 3 verse (coughs) 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now again, who do you think he's talking about here? The departed. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning, you could almost see him pointing to the people that left, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, the thinking here is that this group that has departed, remember I I told you what they majored on? (coughs) They majored on the fact that they truly know God. They had this knowledge of God that these other people are missing out on. So they're prizing this right knowledge. And they don't seem to care about righteous living. So John's writing to this group of Christians saying, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. They might be sinning and might not think much of it, but that sin is lawlessness. That is rebellion. He's kind of showing it for the blackness that it really is, the heinousness that it really is. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You look at people sometimes defend, who defend rioters out there, or looters, going into Best Buys and smashing the window, taking, I almost said VCRs, but those don't exist anymore, <clears throat> going into Best Buys and taking televisions and computers and things like that, and, and then occasionally you'll hear people say, well, they've been wronged by the system, or they're going through things too. No, no. So, so there's this diminishing of sin, this belittling of sin, and John's not going to have it. No, no, no. That's rebellion. That's lawlessness. That's what he's doing here. So there might have been this group that left, and they're not taking their own sin seriously, and they think, no big deal. We know God. We're theologically correct. We know what's true and right. And he's saying, no, 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 no. That sin is lawlessness. That doesn't sit well with God. Verse 5, you know that He appeared, Jesus, you know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there's no sin. What's He trying to say to this group of churches? What's He trying to say to them? He's saying, Jesus came to demonstrate His power over Satan, to take away sin. He came to bring light to a dark world to eradicate darkness. So when he came, guess what his followers are going to therefore then do? They're going to be a light that eradicates darkness even in their own life. So when you think of those other people who look like a lot of darkness, you can recognize that they don't have the power of God in them. Because when Jesus came, he came to do something about the sin, not just in the world, but in here. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one, verse 6, who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. 
Again, these people claimed to know God, those departed people. And if they keep on sinning in a way that's not repentant, does not confess, does not care, because they know the truth, if they continue in sin, not caring, unrepentant, the one who keeps on sinning does not actually know him. Because if you truly knew him, you would know he came to destroy sin, not just in the world, but in my life as well. And he's given me the power to do that, to walk in that new life where sin starts to go away. You would know that. So John's writing to give these Christians clarity in light of the people that have left. No one who keeps on, abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. That's his way of saying stop listening to them. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. That's him summarizing and boiling it all down. Don't listen to them. If you see someone in the regular act of being righteous, then you know that they're righteous. And those people are not. Don't listen to them. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. He heightens it. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Just when you thought he was done in summarizing, he ramps it up. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, and again, he's got the departed in his mind, is of the devil. Now, it's interesting here. The scriptures use a, num- a number of ways to describe Satan. Adversary, little g, God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Here, Paul calls him the devil. What's that mean? Slanderer, malicious informer. He's, he's got a focus on the devil that deals with the devil's words. And so he connects these people to the devil, and it's his way of saying, they look like the devil, they slander, they misinform, they lie. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the one who slanders, misinforms, and lies. That's what John's saying. So again, I told you, these departed people left the church, but they're still talking to the church. They're still trying to sway the church, trying to influence the church. And John's trying to be crystal clear, not just who Christians are and their righteousness. He's trying to be crystal clear about who those departed people are. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil's been sinning from the beginning. This is his way. And guess what? This is the way of his followers. And then he says this again. He repeats this idea. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So follow the logic. So if you are normally, were born in this world and you got older and part of what characterized you was slander, you used to gossip, you used to speak ill of people, or in the words of Romans 3, the poison of snakes was under your tongue. And now you say that you're a Christian, we should assume that that whole mouth problem, that whole mouth sickness is getting much and much better. But when you look at those departed people, they continue the poison of their tongues. They continue the slandering. They continue all of that. So that when the Son of God appeared, He came to destroy those works. Those works aren't destroyed in them. You make the connection. You make the conclusion. They're not children of God. They're children of the devil. You, on the other hand, child of God, you who confesses when you sin with your mouth and now has this new pattern. I want to use my mouth for the right ways. I I want to speak like the Lord calls me to speak and how he himself spoke. I want to do that. That's the mindset that's characteristic of a believer, a child of God. So Paul's just, or John's just writing to make these things clear in our lives. The righteousness that comes from God to us actually has power in it. We are actually changed. No one, verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. There's that idea of being born again. 
When you're born again, you look like the Father. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. He says the same thing two different ways in this one verse. Verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Now here's a summary. By all this it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. John inserts a new idea here on us all of a sudden. He brings in the idea of love. And so we will get to that next week. This is kind of a bridge to a new topic for John. But don't miss what he's saying. He's making it crystal clear. By this it's evident, clear, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. Our righteousness is powerful. Why? Because when God gave it to us, he gave us a righteousness that has power. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. And again, I said it earlier and I'll say it again. When we think of that reality often, we think about the future. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. One day the devil will not have anything to do with this earth. He will be in the lake of fire. We'll be in the new heavens and new earth. He'll be in the lake of fire. Can't wait. God will destroy the works of the devil. True, but not what this passage is saying. This passage is assuming that when God came to you, when you were born again, the works of the devil started to be destroyed in your own life. That's the assumption here. Our righteousness is powerful. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. And that can be shown and demonstrated in the life of a child of God. I want to show you this from one other place, different apostle, Apostle Paul, 1 Thessalonians 1. You can listen or turn there if you'd like. 1 Thessalonians 1. Listen to how Paul talks about these young believers in the faith the Thessalonian church. We give thanks to God always for all of you. This is 1 verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. So this group of believers now is characterized by something. They've heard the message of Jesus and they're now working actively engaged in seeing the gospel being taken to places, their work of faith and their labor of love. They're caring for one another. And they've got this steadfastness of hope. Now, there were trials all around this church, Thessalonian church, but they had a certain steadfastness of hope in God. So they remember, Paul does and his associates, they remember before God, God, and the Father, God the Father their work of faith, their labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. How do you know that, Paul? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. That's how it always comes to one who's been truly born of God. It comes with power. The gospel comes with power. Listen, the gospel doesn't just come with forgiveness of sin. The gospel also comes with the power to change and to be righteous. In fact, if the gospel didn't come, your gospel didn't come with the power to change and be righteous, then it didn't come. When it comes, it doesn't just forgive, it changes. And Paul knows that, and John knows that, and he's writing to tell those people whom it's changed, you are the children of God now. Don't listen to them. So friends, based on the second point, don't listen to people who claim to be Christian teachers but do not have a pattern of righteousness in their life. There's a reason there are character qualifications given for teachers in Titus and 1 Timothy 3. But sometimes we are all tempted to believe Oh, listen to the truth that person is saying. They're rightly analyzing the world. They know what's right. Yes, we agree. But their life 
has a pattern of ungodliness which they do not repent of, don't listen to them. Don't listen. I think another application that comes from the second point. Stop viewing the progress of righteousness as if you're a defeated foe. Hey, that person that's giving you trouble, be patient. Hey, that, that sexual temptation that you seem to keep giving into, overcome it. Ah, oh, I can't. Whoa. Don't sin against the Holy Spirit when you say that. The Holy Spirit is powerful to change. So don't say, I just, I just can't do this right. That's not how a child of God talks. A child of God leans on the power of their father, leans on the character of their father, leans on the power of the Son of God that came for them, leans on the power of the Holy Spirit and says, I can do this by the grace of God. I can do this. So brothers and sisters, don't see your righteousness as if you're a defeated foe. Christ came to defeat the foe and does that in our lives. So believe, trust in the power that we have in Christ Jesus. You're a powerful child of God with his resources that he gives in the gospel. So I hope this passage has brought us some clarity, two characteristics of the righteousness of a child of God. First, it's progressive, and second, it's powerful. I want to give you an illustration of this as we close. During the time of Martin Lloyd-Jones' ministry in Wales, a number of people were being converted. One person who was converted was a man named Staffordshire Bill. That's what he was called, nicknamed 70-year-old man. Lived a life of drunkenness, nearly 70 years. Lived a life of immorality. Was made fun of, mocked as this unrighteous man. One day he was in a pub in Wales having a drink, which was normal for him. And he heard some people at a table talking about a sermon that Martin Lloyd-Jones had recently preached. And they were reflecting on the fact that when it comes to God, no one is hopeless. He will forgive. And so as this man, Staffordshire Bill, heard these people talking, he thought about that because he had thought of himself as this horrible man. And he heard them saying, no one is hopeless. And that stuck with him. It stuck with him. And so the next Sunday, he intended to go to this church. And he walked to the church and kind of paced around outside, and the biographer of Lloyd-Jones says he didn't go inside. And so the next week, he thought, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. And he went the next week, and guess what? Didn't go inside. The third week, he goes. And he's just about to turn around and leave. And someone from the congregation says these words, are you coming in, Bill? Here, sit with me. That's side note. That's a good person for us to be. Are you coming in, Bill? Sit with me. Staffordshire Bill went in that night, his heart already primed by the Holy Spirit, obviously, and there that night repented of his sins and turned to Jesus Christ. Well, a number of weeks later, someone introduced Bill to the wife of Martin Lloyd-Jones, Beth Ann, and they said, Beth Ann, this is Staffordshire Bill, and he stopped them. He said, oh, no, no, no. That is an old name for an old man. I will now be called William Thomas. William Thomas, new in Christ, new righteousness in Christ, lived for three more years he died of pneumonia, but on his deathbed, the biographer of Lloyd-Jones wrote this. William Thomas was far away somewhere. So Lloyd-Jones came to visit him, and William Thomas's mind was, was not there. You know what it's like. Visit a loved one in their dying days, and it's as if they're not, not there. 
William Thomas was far away somewhere, but responded to a greeting and a prayer. He was obviously at perfect peace, and all the evidences of the old, sinful, violent life were smoothed out of a, new, of a now childlike face. That struck me because I thought John's writing so much about a child of God. And this man who was once known for sin, violence, drunkenness, now had a childlike face. Of course he did. The biographer continues to write, the minutes passed and became an hour and more. Then suddenly, the painful sound of difficult breathing stopped. The old man's face was transformed, a light, radiant. He sat up eagerly with outstretched arms and a beautiful smile on his face as though welcoming his best friend. And Staffordshire Bill went to be with the Lord. Not the same circumstances, but that is our testimony. We've been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ and we've been changed. We're not what we once were. We are now the children of God. And we look like him, not in perfection, but by a direction. And one day we'll be brought home forever being perfectly righteous. Our righteousness does progress and our righteousness is powerful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the adoption that you've given us. You've declared us to be your children because of your loving character, your heart that adopts. Thank you for adopting us as your children. Thank you for giving us this letter that wants to ram this truth into our heads that we are the children of God and we are the children of God right now. Father, thank you also for this letter that gives us a hope and a joy in thinking about the second coming and being with you, being like your son as we see him. So Father, for now, for hearts that are discouraged, warm them by the promises found in this passage. Father, for people in here that may be looking at their lives saying, I do not have a desire for righteousness. I have not had that. Mine has all been fake. If that's the case, Father, give them, grant them repentance and trust and rest in your son's gospel, your son's message that he came to destroy the works of the devil. And Father, then change them as forgiven children of God. We pray all this to you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.